I'm excited about this episode of the podcast because I'm going to publish this on three of my podcasts. This is going to go out on my History of Christianity podcast, my Unmasking the Jesus Myth podcast, and my Bedard on Discipleship podcast. I also have a Second World War podcast, but doing something on Gnosticism would have been a stretch. Having said that, I do have an idea for a future crossover between the History of Christianity and Second World War podcasts. You can find links to all of my podcasts at stephenjbedard.com slash podcasts. I hope you'll check them out. In this episode, we're going to look at the early Christian heresy called Gnosticism. I say that knowing that even that statement is controversial. Was its origins actually in Christianity? Perhaps not, but it quickly became known for its relationship with Christianity, and until the discovery of the Nag Hammadi Library, it was chiefly known from the early Christian apologists. This is actually a good time to talk about the sources we have. When it comes to Christian sources, many of these writers are people who are of interest to us for the history of Christianity. We have Justin Martyr in his first apology, Irenaeus in his Against Heresies, Hippolytus in his Refutation Against All Heresies, and Tertullian in his Against the Valentinians. These are all from the 2nd to the early 3rd centuries. These writers provide a lot of information, but there's a problem. They're writing from what's called a Catholic or Orthodox perspective. I'm using lowercase for both those descriptions, and they're writing to attack the Gnostics. They have a strong anti-Gnostic bias, and that's going to color their description. That doesn't mean that we reject those sources. We just need to keep their bias in mind. If only we had some writings from the Gnostics themselves. Wait a minute. We actually do. Many of you may be aware of the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the 1940s. But there was another important discovery in 1945 at Ne Kamadi in Egypt. This was a collection of Gnostic writings. This really filled in the gaps. Of course, being pro-Gnostic, they also have their bias, but when you look at them together with what we already have, we have a pretty good idea of what at least some of the Gnostics believed. I've been using the term Gnostic as if we all knew what that means. We should take a moment to discuss the name. It comes from the Greek word Gnosis, which means knowledge. It came to be used for Gnostics because they claimed to have a secret knowledge that was not available to others. You could say they were in the know. It should also be stated that as far as we know, the Gnostics never refer to themselves as the Gnostics. Rather, Gnosticism is a term used by outsiders in an attempt to identify a group with some common beliefs. So what did the Gnostics believe? That's difficult to say. There's not one Gnostic belief system that every group nicely fits into. It would be like asking what modern Hindus believe. Some would believe in one god, some in many gods, and some in no god at all. That's not to say that there is no hope for identifying Gnosticism. Another analogy would be trying to describe Christianity, but including in that term Roman Catholics, Greek Orthodox, Calvinists, Amish, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Pentecostals. They have some very wide diversity, and yet we would be able to say something of what they have in common. We do know that the Gnostics were interested in the problem of evil. 
And some think this was the question that sparked what would become Gnosticism. They're also interested in anti-cosmic dualism. How that dualism is worked out may vary from group to group, but this seems to be a common theme. They also have a focus on eons, which are intermediaries between God and humanity. This may have led to their embracing of some Christian ideas. We do know that the concepts of creation, anthropology, and soteriology were very important to them. Does that seem kind of fuzzy? I hope it'll make more sense as we look at Gnostic origins and the various groups that have been identified as Gnostic. So where do the Gnostics come from? A number of the early Christian apologists trace Gnosticism to Simon Magus. This is supposed to be the Simon the Magician from Acts chapter 8. While that Simon is an interesting figure, I find it doubtful that he had anything to do with Gnosticism. What we need to remember is that it was very important for those apologists to connect each heresy with a founder. You can't have a heresy without a founder, so Simon's as good a candidate as any, especially with the mystical concepts linked to him in Acts. Actually, there's very little evidence that Gnosticism even goes back to the first century. So where do the Gnostics come from? Do they come from Eastern religions? Do they come from the Platonists? Are they a group of Christians who reinterpreted the Bible? To be honest, we really do not know. There may be links to all of those options, as they're not all mutually exclusive. It's very likely that Gnosticism was like a sponge that was soaking up a number of ideas that were a part of the philosophical and religious world. The view that I find attractive is that the Gnostics have a largely Jewish origin. That may surprise some, as one of the things some people know about Gnosticism is that they claim that the God of the Old Testament was an evil God, since he created the material world, and in Gnostic dualism, matter is evil. If anything, Gnosticism seems anti-Jewish. But hear me out. Some scholars look to the events of the Jewish revolt against Rome. No, not the first revolt that we looked at back in the History of Christianity, episode 29, and not the revolt led by Bar Kokhba that we'll look at in a future episode of the History of Christianity. This is the one that took place between 115 and 117 AD in, among other places, Egypt. There seems to be an Egyptian flavor to Gnosticism, so that already makes this theory attractive. Also, the type of biblical interpretation by the first century Jewish philosopher Philo of Alexandria lends itself to what would become Gnosticism. The idea is that the upheaval of the Jewish community in Egypt after the defeat by the Romans helped to push some into the theological reflection that would have a strong influence on Gnosticism. One of the books that I found particularly helpful in this is No Longer Jews by Carl B. Smith III. I'd like to read to you from part of his conclusion. Smith says this, All the chief elements integral to the Gnostic systems were present only in Egypt. 1. Familiarity with Jewish traditions and scriptures. 2. Familiarity with allegorical hermeneutics and their employment on sacred texts. 3. Awareness of Jewish and or Platonic theories regarding two powers or second God. 4. Familiarity with Platonic concepts of emanations and myth. 5. A sense of alienation from other Jewish groups that were nationalistic or apocalyptic in thrust. 6. A sense of alienation from the world due to social unrest or conflict. 7. 
participation in an intellectual environment in which the issues of anthropomorphisms, ethics, and theodicy were discussed. And eight, an experience of social and political unrest, even revolt, and the consequences thereof. Further, a knowledge of Christianity with its doctrines of redemption and incarnation seems also to be required, along with an awareness of the problems that these doctrines raised with regard to plurality in the Godhead, anthropomorphisms, and resurrection. It can be affirmed with relative certainty that these features form part of the religious context of early 2nd century Alexandria. Thus, the possibility is quite real that the radical features of Gnosticism were birthed on Egyptian soil. There is still plenty of discussion going on in the scholarly world, but this at least gives us one option. So what did the Gnostics believe? As mentioned previously, there was some variation from group to group, but there are at least some things that we can say. The Supreme God is a remote entity that is called the Monad, which means the One. This Monad emanates eons, and one of those eons was the Demiurge, it's the demiurge that creates the material world. This is not seen as a good thing. Divine elements end up getting locked into material beings, and it's through gnosis that humans can be freed from this prison. By the way, this concept has greatly influenced popular Christianity. When modern Christians long to be free from their physical body to become the true spirit that they were meant to be, that comes from Gnosticism rather than the New Testament. So the Demiurge is a neon, but not the only one. One of the most popular was Sophia, which is Greek for wisdom. Sophia is the one that gives birth to the Demiurge. The Demiurge is given a number of names, including Yaldbioth and Samuel. He's portrayed in a variety of ways, ranging from pure evil to plain foolishness. Some have seen a connection between the Logos Christianity of John chapter 1 to the concept of the sending of eons. Some Gnostics saw the Christ as the one sent from the highest heavens to bring salvation. But this salvation was not death on the cross or atonement for sins, but rather sharing the truth of Gnosis, helping divine beings who are trapped in human bodies to become free. We should briefly talk about some of the prominent Gnostic teachers. One of the most significant was Valentinius, who lived 100 to 175 AD and flourished between 120 and 160 AD. He was born in Alexandria, but moved to Rome as an adult. Smith gives this summary of Valentinius's system. Valentinius taught a theology of 15 pairs of emanations in the Paroma. The last of these included Sophia. Sophia experienced a rebellion and fall, and as a result, the Demiurge, who created the world, came into existence. The Demiurge is the equivalent to the God of the Jews. Some of his most notable doctrines include a threefold division among humankind, salvation by nature, both a docetic and adoptionist Christology, and a denial of the resurrection. Another prominent teacher was Marcion, but we're going to look at him in a future episode of the History of Christianity podcast because there's some discussion as to his relationship with Gnosticism. Another teacher was Basilides from Alexandria, who taught between 117 and 138 AD. His movement, the Basildians, lived on for a couple of centuries after him. Some of his beliefs were similar to Valentinius. He did believe that sins from a past existence could be punished in this life, a concept similar to karma. 
One of the forms of Gnosticism that you'll hear about is Sethianism. They get their name from Seth, the third child of Adam and Eve. Smith records a summary of six major themes of Sethian Gnosticism. 1. The Gnostic self-understanding as the seed of Seth. 2. Seth as the savior of his seed. 3. Four illuminators of the autogenes. 4. A trinity of father, mother, and son. 5. The evil demiurge, Yaldbeoth. And 6. The division of history into three ages with the appearance of a savior in each one. This gives us some idea of what some of the Gnostics were like. There's still much that we do not know, and there are many questions that we would like answers for. I do want to say one thing. Every once in a while, you'll hear the claim that Gnosticism was just one of the many Christianities that were out there, all equally valid. And it just so happens that the Catholic or Orthodox versions won out. We can debate the varieties of Christianity, but when it comes to Gnosticism, it likely didn't form until the second century. It has very little in common with the New Testament, and it likely emerged from Judaism separately than Christianity emerged from Judaism. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History of Christianity slash Unmasking the Jesus Myth slash Bedard on Discipleship podcast. I hope you will check out each of these podcasts, including my Second World War podcast. Just go to stephenjbedard.com slash podcasts. And you can support all these podcasts by downloading a free audiobook with a free trial of Audible. Just go to audibletrial.com slash hopesreason. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash hopesreason. You can also support me for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash hopesreason. Thank you for listening. And God bless.